I certainly count it a privilege and an honor to have uh, had this uh, opportunity uh, to stand before you and to preach the word of the Lord, to meet with the session on a few occasions and to talk with members of the, the search committee and I rejoice with you uh, and how the Lord has uh, and how the Lord has held you together, how the Lord has uh, challenged you that even without a pastor, the head man, that you've been able to keep on keeping on, that you've continued uh, to minister to one another. And that it has not negatively, the not having a pastor has not negatively impacted this congregation as far as its attendance and as far as its giving is concerned. And I just want to be sure you appreciate that that's astounding, that that's a gift of God because I can tell you several horror stories of what has happened to congregations when the head pastor, especially a pastor who has been there for, what, 15 years? A, pa a head man who has been the head pastor for 15 years, when he steps down and goes somewhere else, I can tell you a number of horror stories of the consequences that that has upon a congregation too much focused upon that man. And as much as you may have been focused upon Dan, you have kept on keeping on. And all the praise and the glory and the honor goes to the Lord. So as we come to the scriptures this morning, let me, let me pray especially, not only for you, but for Dennis and Theresa, their children whose, I don't remember my grandchildren's names, so I don't remember their names, uh, but for that extended family, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy to these dear people. Thank you for the way in which you have poured out your spirit upon them so that they have carried on the work of the church. And now, Lord, it is with uh, eager anticipation that we look for Dennis and Theresa and the family to be here and to begin to provide uh, the leadership that does come from a senior pastor. But to do that, to become the senior pastor of a congregation that clearly realizes and understands that the work of the church is not simply Dennis's, that the work of the church is the work of the church, and the church are the people of God. So, Father, I, I pray that you will keep that high in the minds of these people, and I pray that you will now begin to do even greater things for the sake of your glory, for the strength of your kingdom, for the, the growth of your church. All glory, honor, and praise be yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Look at Luke chapter 24, the first, the, the last four verses of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. And this is what we read. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So what do you do if you're one of these followers of Jesus? He's gone. He's no longer physically present with you. You've seen him ascend back into heaven. I find it absolutely fascinating in this passage that we're told that what they do is that they return to Jerusalem with joy. I'm trying to think what it would have been like to have been with Jesus for three years and then look around, look at each other and go, he's gone. He's no longer here, physically present with us. And the scripture says that they returned to Jerusalem with joy, with joy. And the scripture says, and I just want you to soak this in. The scripture says they worshiped Jesus. These are faithful Jews who know the Lord's command. The Lord's command is you shall not worship any other God but me. You shall not bow down to any other God but me. And now here are these faithful Jews returning to Jerusalem with joy and they're worshiping Jesus. The source of their joy is that they're worshiping Jesus. Because the only reason these faithful Jews would worship Jesus is because they know who he is. They know this is God. You worship only God. You bow down to no other idol, to none of the other so-called gods. You worship only God. They're worshiping Jesus because they know from all they've experienced over the past three years, from all that Jesus has taught them as he's walked them through the Old Testament, they know he's God. And furthermore, I want to suggest and I don't have any absolutely firm ground to make this suggestion, but 
you'll have to go along with me. I want to suggest, as Jesus walked them through the Old Testament scriptures, walked them through the Old Testament scriptures, they were prepared to understand the significance of his ascension. So that while we're told in Acts chapter 1, they sort of stand there gazing up into heavens, probably with their mouths open and their eyes as wide as mine, they, uh, they understand. He's walked them through the Old Testament scriptures. They under, what do they understand? Well, I don't know. Obviously, Luke doesn't tell us the specific Old Testament scriptures that Jesus used when he talked to the two from Emmaus and when he talked to the disciples. But I'm going to use these scriptures to offer to you an explanation for why they could see Jesus leave them and yet return with joy to Jerusalem as they worship their departed Lord. I'm going to go to the book of Daniel. Now, you don't need, you can take notes, but I'm not asking you to necessarily turn to all these scriptures. So, how seriously did these pious Jews take God's command to worship no other God but the Lord? Well, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 600 years before Jesus. Jewish exiles living in Babylon. And the king Nebuchadnezzar erects a statue and he says, everybody's going to bow down to this statue. And if they don't, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, the report comes back to him that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego haven't bowed down. Now, <laughs> we're going to go down a rabbit trail here in just a moment, okay? Where's Daniel? Have you ever read this passage and thought, okay, where's Daniel? Scripture doesn't tell me. It just doesn't tell me, you know. What we know about Daniel's character, I, I just can't possibly imagine that he bowed down to that idol. So maybe he wasn't in that vicinity at that particular moment, or maybe just perhaps no one has realized that Daniel hasn't bowed down. He has, it hasn't been detected. It hasn't been reported. That's all conjecture on my part. I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is furious and says to them, I'm giving you one more opportunity to bow down. If you don't, you get thrown into the furnace. They won't bow down. They tell Nebuchadnezzar, our God can deliver us. But even if our God does not choose to deliver us out of the flames of that furnace, we will not bow down. Wow. That courage, their courage just... It just, just overwhelms me. I mean, I don't like, you know, I've burned my finger in a flame. 
The idea of being thrown into a fire, I just can't hardly handle it. But into the fiery furnace they're thrown, a fire so hot, of course, that it even kills the people who throw them into the furnace. And as Nebuchadnezzar watches to see them consumed by the flames, what he sees is that the flames are not touching them, and lo and behold, there's a fourth figure with them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, he appears to be a son of the gods. Now, again, Scripture does not tell us who that fourth figure is, which just aggravates me. <laughs> Scripture doesn't tell us who that fourth figure is. But knowing what will later happen to Daniel when he's thrown into the lion's den and he'll be protected by, an, by angels, I, I assume, I mean, conjecture, that most likely it's an angel of the Lord, one of the Sabaoth, one of the host that God has sent to protect them. At any rate, seeing they're not being consumed by the flames and seeing this fourth figure, Nebuchadnezzar orders them out of the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> is stunned to realize, not only have the flames not consumed them, the hair of their head is not even singed, and they don't smell of smoke. And he's forced to admit their God has delivered them because they would not bow down to my idol. Now, that's how seriously they took the command that you won't worship any other God. But here they are worshiping Jesus in Luke chapter 24. They're worshiping Jesus because they know from all that they've seen in the, in the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, they know from all that he has taught them, just having walked them through the Old Testament, they know the significance of that ascension. And therefore, they can return to Jerusalem with joy, even though Jesus is no longer physically present with them. Well, what do they know? Well, let me tell you two more things from Daniel, okay? In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he sees a statue consisting of four metals. In Daniel chapter 7, 30, 40 years later, Daniel has a vision in which he sees four beasts arising out of a storm-tossed sea. Now, when you're reading your Old Testament, by the way, you might want to take note of the fact that a storm-tossed sea is almost always used as in a symbolic manner to represent those who are opposing the Lord and imposing his and opposing his people. So out of this storm-tossed sea, there rises these four beasts. Well, it seems fairly obvious when you study the passages, and if this was a Sunday school class, we'd go into detail at this point, but it's not. But it seems fairly clear 
that the four parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue and the four beasts rising out of the sea represent the same thing. They represent four future empires that will oppose God's people. And most scholars believe those empires to be Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, which, would, which span the history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the time of Jesus. So what happens? Well, two things happen. One in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and one in Daniel's vision. Here's the statue, which probably has a lot to do with the statue that Nebuchadnezzar erects in Daniel chapter 3. But here in Daniel chapter 2, here is the statue, but it's not just the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees. As he dreams, he also sees, and I love this biblical description, a rock cut out of the mountains without hands. Now, have you ever seen a rock cut out of a mountain without hand? There's something special going on here. This rock is something special. And as Nebuchadnezzar dreams, this rock topples, crushes, and pulverizes that statue, that four-part statue that Nebuchadnezzar has seen. And then that rock grows and grows and grows until it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay, now I'm drawing, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that there is a parallel between Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. So what happens in Daniel chapter 7? In Daniel chapter 7, here are these four beasts, and then what happens? What happens, Daniel tells you, is that in his vision, he sees one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, the Lord, Yahweh. One like the Son of Man. What title did Jesus use more often than any other title when he spoke of himself. The Son of Man. And here, in his vision, he sees the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days. And he watches as the Ancient of Days judges the four beasts. The Ancient of Days brings his, if you will, we don't like to speak this way, but I think it's important we understand what's going on here. The Ancient of Days brings his damnation upon the four beasts. They are judged, found guilty, and punished. But, furthermore, as the Son of Man who the disciples have seen ascended, as the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, 
he is given sovereign power, a glory, authority. He is given a kingdom that will never end. He's given dominion that will never be overcome. I suggest to you, that's precisely what the disciples understand is going on as they watch Jesus ascend. They know the scriptures. He is approaching the ancient of days. And he is going to sit down at the Father's right hand, which is the position of, of, uh, the position of privilege. It is the position of authority. It is the position of power. Stop. What time is it? Don't worry about that. Now, 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 stop and think about this. Who can sit at the Father's right hand? No, no. Back up. From Scripture. Who has ever seen God? Who has ever seen God the Father? Who? Who's ever seen God the Father? No one. No one. Moses caught a glimpse of his backside. But no one comes and stands in the presence of God. And the scripture tells us that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now how can he possibly do that if he is simply a man? He can't. The only reason he can assume a position sitting by God the Father is because he is God the Son, which of course leads into another Sunday school discussion about the Trinity, but I haven't got time to go into that. I'm assuming as good Presbyterians, you all understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So here is God the Son sitting down beside God the Father. And he is given the kingdom, he is given dominion, he is given power. But then as you proceed in Daniel chapter 7, this is what you're told. That this kingdom, this dominion, given to the Son of Man, to Jesus, ascended back into heaven, who has approached the ancient of days, who has sat down at the Father's right hand, This Jesus, we're told. As you proceed in Daniel chapter 7, gives, gives to the saints of the Most High the kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus's, given to him by God the Father, an everlasting eternal kingdom that cannot be overcome. And then you're told, as you proceed in Daniel chapter 7, that kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. So I suggest to you, here are the disciples. They've seen Jesus ascend back into heaven. 
Their understanding is that he now approaches the ancient of days, receives the kingdom, receives the position of authority and power. As God the Son sits at the side of God the Father. And that kingdom is now by God's grace and mercy given, <coughs> given to the saints of the Most High. Okay. Who are the saints of the Most High? bunch of scaredy kids. Who? The The church. Now let me make it more personal. And yes, I'm looking for raised hands here. Who are the saints of the Most High? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King, you are the saints of the Most High. To you he has given the kingdom. They understand all of that. That's why they're able to return to Jerusalem with joy, even though Jesus is gone. And they return knowing they have a mission. They return knowing they have a mission, because they return to Jerusalem, because Jesus tells them, you wait in Jerusalem until the Father pours out upon you the Holy Spirit. For when he has poured out upon you the Holy Spirit, you will be equipped, enabled, and empowered to serve as my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Next week you have a missions conference. That missions conference reflects part of our response, part of the response of the saints, part of the response of the church, to carrying out the Lord's commission. But that responsibility is also yours. If you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King, it is only because the grace of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon you. Otherwise, you would never believe. Only the Holy Spirit the prophet Ezekiel says, can change the heart, can enlighten the mind, can equip, enable, and empower you. So this is my final charge to you. Jesus is ascended. He's reigning. He's reigning over a kingdom that is eternal, that will never be overcome. Jesus is the rock of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He is the rock that grows and grows and grows until it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And how is he going to do that? Now, you know, what I would like is for Jesus to go, bam! And it's all done. And we can all look around and go, that was great. You know, that was just great. And, of course, one day that will happen when he returns, until he returns. You are the saints of the Most High. To you he has given the kingdom. He has ascended back to the Father. 
He has given you the Holy Spirit so that now, and I really appreciate the testimonies given this morning, so that now by all that you say and do, no matter how simple or unsophisticated you may think it to be, by all you do, by all you say, no matter how unprepared you might feel, he promises that he will build his church and he will expand his kingdom. I end with one more illustration. I've used it previously, but I always go back to the hero of my life who was my father. A completely uneducated man. I mean, never got a child of the Depression, born in 1919, child of the Depression, so that by the time he's 10, everything is in turmoil. He is farmed out, literally, by his family to work on a farm in Jacksonville, Florida, to earn his own keep, his own living, his own daily food. He never gets past the third grade. He would never stand here and do what I'm doing. His grammar was awful. Yeah, so is mine. But uh, at times, uh, Bill, don't, don't focus on that, Bill. Okay, so his grammar is awful. He can hardly read. He can barely write. But he loves the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind. And you know how he bore witness? By fixing widows' toilets. By mowing the church lawn every week. I mean, I grew up thinking we're supposed to mow the church lawn every week. I mean, I'm about 15 or 16 before I finally think, why isn't somebody else doing this? I've been doing this as long as I can. By mowing the church lawn. If something went wrong in the church building... He fixed it. He could do anything with his hands. Anything. Plumbing, mechanical, wiring. He could do it. I can't do any of that. I don't understand. Just skipped a generation. I, I don't get that. But that's how he ministered. So I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you that somehow or other you've got to find a way uh, to... to uh, to, to get in people's faces and share with them the gospel. Just be alert to the opportunities the Lord gives you to speak a simple word. A simple word of truth. But most importantly, this would have been true of my daddy to the nth degree. Most importantly, live a life the people look at, and people say, what's with him? What gives with them? They're just different. I mean, we hate that, don't we? I mean, we don't want to be different. We want to fit in. If you're going to live for Jesus, you're going to be different. And if you're living consistently for Jesus, people are going to take notice. And as people take notice, you will have opportunity to speak the truth. Now, some of you, 
He may have called to teach. Some of you he may be calling to preach. Some of you may prove to be great evangelists. But those are various parts of the church. That's not going to be true of everyone. But to all of you, saints of the Most High, the Holy Spirit has been given. You are citizens of the kingdom. And you, as citizens of the kingdom, are empowered by the Holy Spirit, by how you live, by all you do, by all you say, to know him and to make him known. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Guide us. Fill us. Encourage us. Challenge us. Stimulate us. Father, we, we are sometimes frustrated by the fact that we can't see Jesus. Sometimes frustrated by the fact that we can't audibly hear his voice. But may we, like the disciples, with joy, now proceed to go about our daily worship, our daily living of life, knowing who you are, where you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what you would have us to do. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.